Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. On orders from Congress, the General Services Administration asked agencies about their accessibility efforts under Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act. The results? Disappointing. GSA found most agencies struggling to meet digital accessibility requirements. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has the details. We should point out, you know, 50 years of Section 508. The needs are always changing. What are some of the big takeaways from the latest assessment, Justin? Yeah, I think it's important to note that this assessment was conducted, as you said, at the direction of Congress and the 2023 spending bill, and it was completed over the last year, so it covers fiscal 2023. What it found is that that conformance to the Section 508 digital accessibility requirements are generally pretty low across government. They measured it on a 5.0 scale and government-wide that measured at 1.79. So that's certainly not a gleaming result there. For instance, less than 30% of the most popular federal websites and internal sites, intranet sites, fully conform with the Section 508 requirements set by the U.S. Access Board, so less than a third. Ultimately, 76% of agencies fall within what GSA calls low maturity or low conformance categories for Section 508. And 508 is a moving target, correct? Because as digital services change, as the technology changes, what was fully accessible 10 years ago might not cut the mustard for today's services. Sure, but to be fair, the uh, the 508 requirements are actually based on standards that came out in 2008. And so, of course, agencies are yeah. struggling with their technology modernization efforts across the board in some cases, but these standards have been in place for a while. All right. Well, yeah, 2008, so not so good. Why? I mean, what did GSA discover? The reason is that so many agencies are behind the curve here. Might not be surprising to hear it comes down to staffing and, and resources. The GSA assessment really links those two issues to conformance with Section 508. So out of the 249 federal entities that responded to GSA's assessment, 93 reported having less than one full-time Section 508 staffer. 36 reported having none at all. GSA ultimately concluded that not having sufficient staff, you can't necessarily have good Section 508 conformance. I spoke with Mike Gifford. He's a senior strategist at Civic Actions. He's been tracking this issue for a while. There's just so many places where they've demonstrated that accessibility is being under-resourced by agencies and that more staff are needed and more funding is needed to produce better results. They have a pullout in the PDF that says, Simply put, Section 508 programs that do not have sufficient staff cannot perform adequate Section 508 work, and Section 508 program resources are low across government. They're acknowledging that this is an existing problem that they have to to address. It sounds like someone or some staff has to own 508 and keep it up and going. Justin, what's the government doing to make up some of the ground here? Yeah, this assessment comes at an opportune time in some ways. The Office of Management and Budget uh, at the White House just a few weeks ago issued a new Section 508 directive that gives agencies really a bevy of different actions to carry out. One of them is being assigning a, an agency-wide Section 508 program manager. So there's part of that staffing issue and then also making sure that their budgets uh, take into account Section 508 resources. So that's one thing that agencies are now moving out on here in the coming year. 
One thing to look for is when those fiscal 2025 budget requests come out, keyword section 508 and see what agencies come up with. And the GSA has been the locus of 508 efforts for many, many years. What recommendations did that agency have for everybody else? The big ones are that they recommend Congress consider updating Section 508 to more clearly define federal agencies that are subject to the law's requirements, as well as to account for changes in technology. Gifford told me there's been a lot of uncertainty around Section 508 compliance, creating a possible opening for Congress here. There's been a lot of uncertainty as to who and what needs to comply to Section 508, who needs to deal with this, and what is the the responsibility for federal agencies, and what are the consequences if a federal agency does not comply. There's lots of federal agencies that are not complying. Congress needs to make it clear what the expectations are of federal agencies. And you mentioned the 2025 budget submissions, which are in theory, any day now. Congress has not even done the 2024 budget yet. (laughs) And so let's assume that there's not going to be a lot of fast action on 508 from Congress. Is there anything the White House and agencies can do just to take this bull by their own horns? These standards have been in place for a while now. There are tools out there, both automated testing tools to make sure your website conforms with digital accessibility standards. And GSA recommends, of course, agencies use those if they're not right now, as well as manual testing methods using folks who who actually have disabilities and making sure that they can access a website or, you know, a a piece of technology that they need to access. And, of course, GSA is recommending agencies take advantage of those. The assessment also suggests that the government look at some sort of uh, government-wide shared service for Section 508 tools so that agencies that maybe can't afford some of these automated testing capabilities on their own could go and get them from the shared service. I think that uh, Claire Martorano, the federal CIO, recently came out with a memo about agencies using federal website design standards kind of to try to pull everybody back to standards in the way the federal government deploys websites. We see this every 10 years or so. Everything drifts away from the standards, Mm. and and an administration wants to snap things back to the standards so the government looks uniform to the public. I imagine 508 could be part of that when people are redoing websites. And I mean, a lot of this is websites because most applications, even internal applications, are accessed through a browser. Basically, we're talking about websites for the most part. That's right. We're talking about websites. And I mean, this issue has become really important post-COVID, of course, because so many agencies started provisioning their services online as opposed to having to go into some office. And so if that becomes the de facto first option for accessing a government service or benefit or whatever, then those websites, obviously, it's even more important for them to meet accessibility standards. And with more and more people working remotely, including those with disabilities, and maybe on smaller devices or even trying to access things with mobile devices, when you think about it, it becomes a pretty daunting technical challenge. And even modern websites have so many links and so much fine, small visual detail that, you know, relative to websites of 20 years ago, you really have to rethink the way that you apply whatever accessibility tools are available. Yeah, and I mean, the assessment points out that agencies really need to be thinking about these issues in the requirements phase of when they're putting together a procurement or whatever, and then, of course, in the procurement phase when they're selecting vendors as well to get at that point that it's harder to change things after you already put it out there than when you're actually designing it. And besides, good accessibility is good for not just people simply with disabilities, but people with glasses or people that are aging, can't hear as well as they did, whatever the case might be. Very often, a fully accessible site is easier for everybody. 
Absolutely. It makes a difference for everyone. I think we hear that a lot with accessibility conversations in general is progress for folks who need it is progress for everyone. Yeah, trust me on that one. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.